So we come to a touchy subject in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. The beauty of taking Scripture verse by verse is that you have to work through the tough stuff. And such is the text we're going to look at today. Most often, we come at Jesus' teaching on divorce and marriage only as part of a thematic study on marriage and divorce. And so even reading these verses might bring up tension for you because of the subject matter itself, because of past conversations. But today, we've come to this in the context that will help us bring full light to it. Now, before we start, I'm going to share a little joke. A woman was talking to her lawyer about her four marriages and giving him the history, and she said, well, the first guy I married was a wealthy businessman, and the second guy I married was a magician. The third guy was my personal trainer, and the fourth was an undertaker. And the lawyer said, why did you marry all those different guys? And she said, well, I married one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. Yeah, okay. Now that I've got you booing me, you're all set for this subject. I'm just wondering as we begin, if you have... Uh, experienced personally in your life a divorce or a parent or a family member, if there has been divorce that has touched your life in some way, would you raise your hand? Just look around and you'll see how prevalent this issue is and why it's so completely relevant for us today. Now, it's also timely because of the recent Supreme Court decision and uh, the statement that we're saying as a Christian community is that the United States just redefined marriage. Now, I would like to take a couple minutes and give us some um, footing for our conversation about this. In some sense, we redefined marriage a long time ago as a nation. This is just the latest interpretation of it. You see, every time a nation takes on itself to define and legislate marriage, they are essentially redefining it. Because real marriage, as we're going to learn in Scripture, is not a legal matter. It's not about contract. It's about covenant and about mission. You've grown up in a culture that defines marriage differently even when it was just members of the opposite sex. Our culture has redefined marriage around sexual attraction, romance, right? Mutual satisfaction. We're willing to be with each other as long as we find each other attractive, as long as the romance. In fact, so often the media tells you what you really need to do is keep the romance going. Can I just tell you? that even though we old people will tell you the romance is still there, what we mean by that is completely different. (laughs) Spirit is willing, but the flesh is truly weak. (laughs) And if we're thinking that's what it's all about, well then we redefined marriage. That was never God's design for marriage. Now, we could debate forever how to approach our culture in relation to marriage. But I wanna be clear, what I'm talking about today is what I know for sure the Bible teaches about how Christians are to treat marriage. As marriage and other moral issues have taken the decided non-biblical direction 
Christianity has gotten caught up in deciding we're gonna fight this on a culture, on a legal, on a constitutional level. We're gonna try to turn our nation back, listen to me, not to God, but to religious righteousness. Because you can't turn people back to God by changing laws. Did you know that? And did you also know that people that don't love God won't follow God's laws? The fact is, the one true thing that we have, that's the power of God to transform lives, transform marriages, and transform culture. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. So our job, our job is not to get in a picket line because then we create enemies of the very mission field that we're part of. So the analogy for us as Christians in the United States is not to think of ourselves as the people of God in Jerusalem. When God ruled, we need to more see ourselves as the people of God in Babylon. We need to think of ourselves as people who are citizens of the kingdom of God but living in a foreign kingdom. The passage just read for us today reminds us of that. We are foreigners in this world. We're citizens of God's kingdom living in this world as his ambassadors. We need to think strategically here in the same way God told the children of Israel in Jeremiah 29 how they should act in Babylon. Build houses, have children, get into business, work for the good of the city, pray for the good of the city because when God blesses the city, he'll bless you. The mission of God's people in a foreign land is to be salt and light by how we live. So what I wanna challenge you is Let's not right now get so caught up in how we're gonna try to turn back the tide towards whatever picture of morality we think represents a Christian nation. This is not a Christian nation. This is a nation that was strongly influenced by Christians, but not exclusively. It has never been a place where Christianity is required as the state religion, last time I checked, it's freedom of religion. And while we have in the past had a strong influence on that, we need to get out of this idea that we're in the promised land and we're losing the battle and it's time for us to take it back by force. And so what I'm gonna talk about today is not about how we confront the moral demise of our culture. What I wanna talk about today is what I believe Jesus was talking about in this passage. And that is what marriage and divorce are about in his kingdom. Because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's the description of the kingdom culture, our culture as citizens of that kingdom. And just to review, for those of you that are just here today, we are in now the second section of that sermon, but the first section describes us, kingdom people, the Beatitudes. What we're supposed to look like, and then the salt and light metaphor that wraps up that section, talks about the impact we're to have on the world. And now, Jesus gets into these contrasting statements between the Pharisaical law, the legalistic concept of how we live righteously, and the heart of godliness. For those of us who the Beatitudes say, hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that look like? Not just the letter of the law, but our hearts. You need to understand, I'm assuming that context as we go through here. So with that in mind, Matthew chapter five, and we're gonna begin reading at verse 13. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the context now. Jesus, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest teacher who ever lived, is now moving into what that looks like. What it looks like to be a city on a hill. And our marriages are part of that mission. Let's continue. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, I tell you, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Snaps to Paul for handling that passage so great last week. Really good job. Yeah, I just did that, yeah. (laughs) Can't believe I just did that. (laughs) Verse 31, and here we are. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here we are. Now, why does Jesus take two verses and talk about divorce in the midst of this beautiful picture of the kingdom of God, which is not just about the letter of the law, but about the condition of the heart. The Pharisees were saying, as long as I don't murder, I'm good. Jesus said, if you hate in your heart, you're worthy of judgment. It's not just about not being murderers. It's about being peacemakers, be reconcilers. And then he says about adultery, the thought, the lust, is worthy of judgment. And you couldn't do enough in order to keep that from happening. That's the hyperbole of saying, you know, cut out your eye or your arm or other extremities that give you trouble. And I love Paul's quote that we'd end up rolling into heaven as stumps if we tried it that way. And Vitt leaned over and said to me, it's only a flesh wound. That's hyperbole. The only person that could take on 
our sin and our lust was Christ who sacrificed everything for us and that we put to death our flesh in him. It's about the condition of our heart. So now we come to divorce and we have to understand that what Jesus intends here is to contrast what marriage is meant to be versus how the Pharisees and therefore much of Israel practiced divorce. Now, this is an abbreviated summary of a more extensive teaching in the 19th chapter. And so that's where I want to turn because there's a lot we can take out of this 19th chapter about what marriage in the kingdom is meant to be. And then we'll double back and talk about how we can have hope that we can have these kind of marriages. We're going to begin reading at verse 3 of Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. All right, let's take it step by step. The first thing, the Pharisees come to him and test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Here's where this comes from. In first century Judaism, there were two competing schools of thought, one of which was extremely legalistic and chose to interpret everything they could as strictly as possible. But then there was another group that had a more generous interpretation of Scripture. And these two groups conflicted about divorce and remarriage. One group believed that only in the case of moral infidelity could divorce happen. What happens in Deuteronomy 5 is that Moses talks about two different types of divorce, actually. The first one, he says, if a a husband divorces his wife for marital infidelity, and then she goes off and marries another man, and then that man either divorces her or dies, And in that case, the divorce is because the man just finds her unpleasing. The first husband cannot remarry the wife. What is that all about? (laughs) Okay, so this is common practice, not only in Israel, but in all the nations around them. Men could divorce, and of course, women had no right at all. This is the patriarchal strongly chauvinistic culture that Jesus also had come into 
And Jesus radically altered that culture by elevating women, by restoring the original pattern in the book of Genesis as men and women being partners. Jesus elevated women in a way that was seen as scandalous by the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are still caught up in this tradition that dates all the way back to Moses. The first type of divorce was based on moral infidelity. The second type of divorce was just based on you burnt the toast. I mean, I'm not kidding. The second group, the more lenient group, basically said that there could be all sorts of reasons for a man to divorce a woman. So this was the conflict that existed. Now, there was a point later on in the first century, maybe the second century, where the two came together in a meeting and uh, there actually was bloodshed. The more liberal, permissive group, actually several of them were killed until the more conservative group won the day. And uh, modern Judaism sees that as a very dark incident. But that's how strongly these groups were divided. So when the Pharisees come up to Jesus to test him, they're looking to draw him into this animosity between these two groups. And they say, can a man divorce a woman for any reason whatsoever? And then Jesus, in verses four through six, doesn't answer the question. He goes back to the original plan for marriage. And so this is as important a part of this morning as any other thing we're gonna share. Because what we're gonna see is what Jesus taught about marriage. We're gonna see three things in this verse, that marriage is God's doing, it's God's design, and there's God's desire for it. The first thing we see is that marriage in the kingdom of God is God's doing. Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Real marriage, not what the state affirms it to be or what our culture calls it, or even what many Christians assume it is, real marriage is God's creation. But more than that, when he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate, your marriage is God's doing. In the kingdom of God, it is not our pledges that bind us. God joins us. We think we're joining one another. God is doing the joining in Christian marriage. So marriage from its inception to its personal experience as Christians is God's doing, not yours. I like to think I won my wife, but I actually could never have done that if God didn't do it. I I see that now a lot better than I did at 23 years of age. So grateful that God did the binding Uh, with me and this wonderful woman. We move on. (laughs) It's not only God's doing, but God had a design. Some people say Jesus didn't talk about sexual issues, gender issues. Jesus didn't define marriage, but he definitely does. This is what he says. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one 
flesh. So make no mistake, Jesus is affirming the Genesis creation account as the origin of marriage, as God's design for marriage. And this is what we learn. There are two parts, male and female, that are made to be incomplete without one another, physically and emotionally in so many different ways. I have interesting debates with my Ella about how much of our differences between men and women is a construct and how much of it is God's doing, but clearly we were made male and female in order to become two parts of a whole. Jesus affirms that. And then God has a desire for marriage. Jesus says, since that is the case, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So rather than saying to the Pharisees, well, you can divorce on this basis or this basis, he's really saying, well, look, that was never part of the equation. (laughs) God never planned divorce. His picture was that a man and a woman would come together And because they are now one, a whole new entity, they are to stay one. No one should separate them. It's God's desire that our marriages are to be a lifelong union. So let me tell you, even though I know in this room there are those of us that have experienced divorce and the pain of it, some of you before you came to Christ, some of you as Christians, some of you have struggled in your marriages, and are weighing that commitment to one another, let me tell you, God's plan is not that you divorce. And going forward, that needs to be how you function as a citizen of the kingdom of God. We could have lots of conversations about how the past implicates the future, but that's not on point today. The point is, this is our bearing going forward now. Jesus is saying that divorce was never part of the picture. And that's why the Pharisees come and then say, well, if that was the plan, then why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? This is very important. The Pharisees are misquoting Deuteronomy 5. Moses never commanded divorce to take place. And that's why Jesus clarifies. He says, Moses only gave you regulations about divorce Because of the hardness of your heart, divorce was a cultural reality. It happened because people are sinful. We fail, we fall short. So Moses accommodated your divorce by trying to give structure that at least didn't put a woman in a place where, and this was, I can't take time to talk about this, but it was a lot about dowry. The woman took dowry with her in the case of a divorce, and the first husband might come back to the woman because of the dowry. Moses wanted to prohibit that from happening. Let me be very clear about this. The Bible does not legislate divorce. The Bible does not give you rules and regulations that if these conditions exist, you are blessed and should feel good about divorce. It doesn't do that. The Bible, Old Testament and New, manages divorce. And there's a big difference. Divorce is a reality. Jesus clearly sees it as outside of God's original plan and therefore a product of sin. When did divorce start? When the race fell. Paul says, sin came into the world and death through sin. Let me paraphrase. Sin came into the world and divorce, death of marriages, 
because of sin. And because of that, like all sin, divorce is a part of our life. What you see in the Old Testament is Moses accommodating that actually for the protection of women in a world where women didn't have a lot of protection. It's one of those ways that Keller points out that actually the Old Testament law, even though by today's standards seems very unfair, was actually a huge step towards empowering women compared to cultures around them. And then of course in the New Testament, Christ completely restores the original partnership between husband and wife. So I want you to see that God is never for divorce. The fact is divorce happens and God gives guidance for it. And Jesus does the same thing here. Jesus replies to them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, this is a real difficult issue because if there is a permissible, a manageable reason for divorce, infidelity, or a non-Christian spouse that chooses to leave. Those are really the two things that the New Testament talks about. The fact is, divorce is always the result of moral brokenness, of the brokenness of our hearts, of our spirits. And therefore, it's the result of sin. It is not God's plan. Lifelong marriage is, and so it follows then that remarriage is in some sense adultery. Jesus is trying to lay out the importance of God's plan for lifelong marriage. Now, I would like today to try to solve all the issues that that brings up, but I can't do that for you today. I can say that I believe that there's grace, I believe there's forgiveness, and I know that I can help you chart your path forward right now. Let's talk about what God really wants so that we can aspire for that. We not only see what marriage is, according to Jesus, practically, but we understand it purposefully. We need to see our marriages as part of our mission in life. The reason why Jesus discusses marriage in the Sermon on the Mount is because it's critical to our mission of being salt and light. So I want to share three quick points and then we'll move forward into some hopeful thoughts on how we can aspire to the type of marriage that Jesus uh, reminds us of. So the first thing to understand our marriage's mission is to see that a godly marriage bears witness to the world that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember, we're becoming people of the kingdom through the Beatitudes, we're being transformed. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. How we interact in our marriages bears witness about that. And so because of that point too, a godly marriage is one way that we are salt and light to the world around us. How do we address the culture right now as it is in relation to marriage? Well, there's one thing I know for sure. Show the world what a blessed marriage is. Live a godly, blessed marriage. Remember what the kingdom is all about? Makarios, the first word Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed. This is a blessed life. We show the world what God intended by living that blessed marriage before the world around us. That I know we should be doing, and it's part of our mission 
And then the third thing we need to remember is that one of the reasons this is so important to Jesus is because marriage is not just for procreation, it's not just for God's glory, it's not just for human relationship and satisfaction. Marriage is one of God's primary metaphors for the gospel, for his relationship to the church. In Ephesians 5, we have this beautiful teaching, again, a hotly debated teaching about the roles of marriage, husbands and wives, and we get often so caught up that we miss one of the most beautiful parts of that passage, and that is that the church is Christ's bride. Let's say this together from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to present to himself as a radiant bride, holy and blameless. When we live blessed marriages before the world around us, we are a living object lesson of the sacrifice that Christ made to present to himself the church as his glorious bride without any spot or wrinkle. And in seeing Christ's sacrifice for his bride, we are to follow him and be just as sacrificial ourselves. I often have heard people say, the women have the rough thing in Ephesians 5. (laughs) It's rough on both sides, let's just admit it. Men, the Pharisees thought they could just get rid of the wife and find somebody they're happy with. Jesus said, die for your wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her that she might be radiant. If your brides aren't more radiant today than they were the day you married them, then you're slacking on your job. I didn't mean to say that. That was free. (laughs) But that's so important. We demonstrate the sacrificial love of Christ in how we love one another and allow our marriages to endure. So with that in mind, there is in the Sermon on the Mount a great teaching that talks about how these kind of marriages that God designed can endure. It's through his transformation. Where do we find that? You say, where in the Sermon on the Mount are the keys to a kingdom marriage? Let me show them to you. It starts with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The very transformation that the Beatitudes are to make in all of us is our true hope for lifelong marriages that honor God and that are missional to the world around us. You see, people who are poor in spirit recognize our own brokenness. We're not just blaming our spouse. We're not just saying you're the problem in this relationship. We own, and that's the second thing. Blessed are those who mourn. We own, we admit our failures. Just as we do when we come to Christ. This is a path into the kingdom. It's also the path to a lifelong marriage. I admit that I'm part of the problem, and I weep and confess that so that in being personally transformed, my marriage can be transformed, right? And then the third, meekness. What did we learn about meekness? It's coming under the authority of God. Meekness in marriage is our surrendering our marriage 
to God's authority. And then hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We want what God wants for our marriage. Blessed are the merciful. If there's any societal institution where mercy is desperately needed, it's marriage. We give mercy so that we can receive mercy. We're all broken people who need God's grace. And in marriage, husband, wife, you need to minister God's grace to one another. You are not God's judgment. You are not God's prophetic ministry on your spouse. You are God's vehicle of mercy and grace. And you desperately need it too. So let's get real about that. And then, blessed are the pure in heart. We must seek pure passion, singular devotion to God and to our spouses. Please, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, go back and listen to that as we look at how lust has so redefined marriage. We need pure passions, peacemakers. We need to be reconcilers, not dividers. Our marriages need to be a place where we're practicing and making peace. And how about this last one? Blessed are the persecuted. No, I'm not talking about your relationship with your spouse. Let's admit it, to live this kind of marriage before the world, in the way the dialogue's going right now, we might face some persecution. But our job isn't to convince people who can't even embrace the gospel yet because the Holy Spirit hasn't opened their eyes. Our job is not to convince them of the right way to be married. I firmly believe that. How can we expect people to say, oh, that makes sense, when they lack the Holy Spirit in their life, that is why it makes sense to you and me. Our job is to live it in front of them, to live it and to have them see the presence of God and want it. But the persecution also reminds us that hard times don't break us. Hard times don't destroy our commitment. A few years ago, Vit and I, who have now been married 37 years, very grateful for that, probably more like 15, 20 years ago. We, we watched this show called 30-something. Anybody remember that? There was this one couple. They were the healthy couple that held everybody together. And they had this one episode where they were having a hard time. And it was all around the parents renewing their vows. And so they went to the, the home of the parents, and they're having problems and around this. And then the parents have their ceremony, and they look at each other from opposite sides of the ceremony and sneak out behind the tent. And she says to him, I don't want to divorce you. And he says, I don't want to divorce you either. And so they, they're back together, you know, and we all breathe a sigh of relief. And I remember turning to Vit and saying, you know the difference between us and them, and I don't say this to say we're superior, but I say, you know the difference between us and them? We have made a commitment. We will never consider divorce an option because God didn't intend it. Vit and I do not have a perfect marriage. It's mostly my fault. (laughs) Vit and I have had very difficult seasons. You know why? She's not the woman I married. And I'm not the man she married. I wish we still were those naive, innocent kids. But we've been burned. We've been wounded. 
We've been seasoned. We've been wizened. And all that has changed us. Kids changed us. Some of our biggest conflicts came over our kids. Amen, yeah. You're saying true. You're not saying great. I understand what you're saying, right? Some of our, some of our toughest times, and I'll tell you, sometimes how we felt when we stood right next to each other feeling miles apart might have felt as desperate as other people. But there's never been a moment in our relationship where the word divorce has even come up. Because if you do that, then it becomes part of the possibilities. And when it's not a possibility, you make it work. And I'm so glad, I am so glad to have made it work. Now I know that for some of you, you go, I wish I had done that. And and I'm not saying that to try to bring out regrets here but I want to paint a picture for all of us going forward. This is the type of commitment that God makes to us in Christ, that he makes to his church, and it's the commitment we are to make for one another. And it's a blessed thing. I think I need to make one clarification. If you are in a marriage relationship or in a parental-child relationship where there's physical or severe emotional abuse taking place, you need to get out of that relationship as quickly as you can because that is not what we're talking about here. And we would be glad to help you with that. We'd be glad to counsel you and help you and even work towards God's grace and transformation to come about. But please do not mistake what we're talking about here as that. We're not. But we are talking about Honoring God in the same way Christ is devoted to us, being devoted to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Father, I just really thank you for the privilege of sharing a a tough topic and being well-received, graciously received by my church family here and. Lord, I I know that right now all sorts of emotions are coming to the surface, memories of great pain, confusion maybe about what now for where different individuals are. But I do believe that just being reminded of your plan and your desires for us and recommitting ourselves to that wherever we are right now, that's the right thing for all of us in this moment. And I pray for the work that you wanna do in each life here those here who are preparing for marriage in the future and uh, others who are in a marriage that is either blessed or stressed, that they'll reach for something higher and more noble and more godly. And I pray for each marriage in this room. I know they are a victim of spiritual and social warfare. I pray you will protect them. I pray you will bind them together in Jesus. And I pray that there would be peace and grace not only for the good of that household and for the children, but for the good of your kingdom and for this community that we're called to reach. In Jesus' name, amen.